0: Beautiful one, welcome to today's episode of the Diverse K Life Podcast. If you don't know what the Diverse K Life Podcast is, it is a weekly conversation with tech industry experts and career strategists where I interview them about their careers to help you with your own technology career. I'm Kawat Abdul Hakim, the founder of Diverse K, whose mission is to help you choose and navigate your dream tech career. Visit DiverSky.com to learn more. If you would like to join the podcast live, which is always fun, it happens every Friday on my LinkedIn. You can find the link to my profile in the description. If you're also not subscribed where you're currently listening, make sure to hit the subscribe button. Now let's get into today's episode. Just to kick it off, let's start with your Journey, basically. Let's just talk about your journey into machine learning, where it all started.
1: So, I started out getting a PhD in political science, where I learned a lot of stats. And then, after my PhD, I went to work for organizations like Frontline SMS, which was a Kenyan US nonprofit that built open source software and Ushahidi, which is another Kenyan organization that builds open source software. While working at those places, I realized how powerful it could be to work on ML, like the stuff that I you could do to, you know, put a model into production and have that do the work of a hundred people, right? Label something that you wouldn't have funding to hire human labelers for, or identify complex things and images and that kind of stuff. And from then I just kept on going, right? I just kept on learning more stuff and reading more books and reading more articles and getting more and more jobs into the space. And, you know, years later, you know, years later I'm here at at the Wikimedia Foundation, but that was really where where it started was sort of working at a small organization, having, you know, having a background that I knew about machine learning at the time because it wasn't that popular and then you know, sort of self-teaching myself all the way, because I don't have a computer science like degree at any type. I don't have a, you know, an undergrad degree in computer science or a PhD in computer science. So a lot of it was just sort of self-taught along the way.
0: Yeah, interesting. Like a lot of machine learning people that i have spoken to myself inclusive are self-taught. We all started mm-hmm. self-learning and, you know, trying to like further our knowledge yeah, so w- were you living in Kenya at that time? Like you worked for two Kenyan organizations. <laughs> I didn't live in
1: Kenya for either of them or when later I worked for Brick, which was a Kenyan startup. My my family's from Zimbabwe, but oh. I live in the US. So I've always just stayed in the US. And oh, then, then thought I, you Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I live in the US and I have a US accent, but my, my family's originally from, from Zim. And so, I mean, that was sort of the connection with Kenya where like yeah. I knew that there was a there was a Kenyan organization that that you know was looking for people to hire and and I just jumped on that so I I never moved out to Kenya for any of those jobs although I went to Kenya I don't know how many times at this point a lot a lot yeah. of times at <laughs> this point to go to go work with to go work with staff
0: yeah interesting so like how would you describe your job as a machine learning engineer engineer then like when you got started
1: so I mean the 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 big part of machine learning engineering is the fact that when machine learning got popular the a lot of the work around machine learning was from the academic space and so it was like here's a new model like here's a paper like a research paper or a Jupyter notebook that has this model in it that does something really really interesting and the key part of machine learning engineering is okay, how do we then put that into production? Like, how do we make that model automatically retrain every single night? Or how do we handle that model and make sure that it's up and working when we have 2000 models, right? That's the sort of space where machine learning engineering comes in. It's the the application of those like very classic machine learning principles that would be common to any kind of software engineer to to the unique problem of machine learning where... You know, you have a situation where like it can be models cannot work, right? Like, well, you could just be like, I'm going to predict X using the stuff, and it just turns out that doesn't work. And so that's like really the the focus of machine learning engineers, like trying to make sure that we get that get those models into production, get them running live, getting them in a place where they can feel really good and know when they break, right? I mean, that's of course like a big thing that can happen where like you can, <laughs> you know, a model can be putting back different results. There can be model drift because for example, at the Wikimedia Foundation, we have some models in production that we've had in production for like five or six years and behavior on the site changes over time. And so like the models are like outdated in a way. And so like that kind of model drift, like how do you detect that and then implement a solution for that? That's sort of the really focus of mach- machine learning engineering, as opposed to something like machine learning.
0: Yeah, yeah. The point you touched on is quite interesting. And I, I want us to go a bit technical now. So how would you describe that process of like, okay, you know, there's an existing machine learning model that's currently in production, but Maybe due to like time changes, the new data coming in is like a bit varied from what we used to actually train it in the past. So, like, how just explain the technicalities behind you know retraining the whole model using the like new data sets and you know what happens with the old model and you know all of that. Sure.
1: So in machine learning engineering, there's lots of ways to do this, but typically what you want to do is along the lines of of model versioning. And so every single time that you train a model, you assign a version number to that model and then every single retraining period. So you could retrain on any period, but let's say every night. So every single night, you get new traffic data from the website. So we run a website. I mean, technically I do work at a place that runs a website. So like fair enough, Yeah. But you're running a website. You're, you use like the last 60 days worth of data to create your model. But every single day you, you know get a new day's worth of information and you drop the last day. So the, the data set is like slightly different every single day. And in that situation, what you typically want to do is you're retraining the model every single night. And then you, you compare it to the performance of past models, specifically the last one you retrained. And so there's various ways to do this. There's what's called shadow modeling, which is where you have the new model, like, you know, version what, version two of the model and version one of the model. And when a, when a a prediction request comes in, you actually serve it to both And then you serve back the new model to the person who asked for it, you know, another service or something like that. But then you store the results of both on your side. And so you can see how Mm. the two models work better. Which one
0: is most accurate and all.
1: Yeah. And then, and then what you could do is then you can set it up as like, okay, if the new model, like if, if the model we trained tonight is actually better than the one we trained last night, yeah. then we'll go into full production with the new one. And then, or you could do something where you serve a percentage of traffic to the different models. So 5% goes to the new model, mm. 95% goes to the old model. Then you see, and then whichever one does better becomes the new model you put, yeah. put out. And like that kind of stuff of like constantly working on that and, and trying to automate that so yeah. that- you can have a situation where like you're not sitting there with a long to-do list every single night. Like I need to retrain the specific model, but the idea behind it is is trying to incrementally move to, or to accept the fact that things change over time, user behavior changes, the needs of the business changes, technology changes. And so you are retraining those models and trying to figure out If there's a, you know, if there's a best one in an ideal world, the whole retraining process would be automated. So then you would just do that whole thing every single night, you know, like you'd have a batch job that would run every single night. And then you could, the whole process would be like the model selection. Like, do I use version two or version one? All that would be for you at midnight or something like that. I think there's lots of steps along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Like at.
0: another thing I wanted to like mention was, you know, there'll be cases where the new data is filled with like outliers and it's not like what would normally come in. And in that case, the old model would be better. So do you just like get rid of the new data or in the first place, how is it even like recognize that the new data is, you know, an outlier?
1: Yeah. So, That model evaluation part, I think is the most under respected (laughs) part because making a new model is of course like what's interesting and cool, but actually understanding if a model is good or bad or, you know, better or worse, probably a better way of putting it is really hard because for example, do you, you have model two and model one in in this scenario, do you compare both to model two's data or model one's data? or say you have like a specific holiday that comes on. So that like one day isn't a holiday. The next day is a holiday and user behavior changes Mm. like because it's a holiday. Well, if you don't account for that kind of stuff, you could have a situation where the day after the holiday, you've trained the model for the holiday. So you're always like one day behind where you should be, where in fact, maybe it'd be better to go back and find last year's data for the holiday, train it for the holiday. And so like you have that specific like case of a day that's different than other days, but it really, it comes down to model evaluation, which is more of an art than a science, although there's lots of science in there. Yeah. And it's I mean, it's super important. And it, I I think I think sometimes we don't pay attention to it as much as we should.
0: Yeah, that's very true. Okay, let's let's get out of the technical part again and talk about your career currently as a director, as a machine learning director. Sure.
1: So I am the director of machine learning at the Wikimedia Foundation, which means I am responsible for all the machine learning that is hosted. By the Wikimedia Foundation. And a lot of the work is around supporting the models that we have as a foundation into production. Yeah. But the interesting part about this role is that we are open and transparent as a foundation. So most people, you know, who work in ML, you're sort of deep in the organization's organizational tree. Yeah. Things that you do is, is you know, intellectual property that you can't show people and that kind of stuff. At the foundation, we do everything public. So all of our code is public. All of our work tickets are public. Our internal team chat is public. Um, I have like live streamed myself working well, multiple times. <laughs> yeah, just, and it, it makes it a really interesting and unique place to work because because, people can come in and and say, Hey, I, I can see everything you've done in the last week. And you know, it's terrible. And you just, you know, you, you get used to the fact that you're sort of, you're just out there and it becomes sort of normal, but it is definitely not a normal work environment in that, in that sense. But it is something that I think the team takes really seriously because as as the wikimedia foundation we are we don't we're not funded by you know an investor right there's no there's no vc who funds like mm-hmm. wikipedia and the wikimedia foundation it is just regular people who give you know a small amount of money and just if enough people give a small amount of money we have enough money to sort of keep the site going and in that environment you are really responsible and you really feel it, that you're trying to maximize the amount of value that you're giving the people who are donating. And so you don't want to, you, know, you don't want to spend money where you don't need to. Yeah. And that's been a, a really interesting part of, of the foundation of having every single engineer, literally every single engineer care a lot about the cost of stuff, which mm-hmm. I had never experienced before. Cause normally engineers are like, Oh no, no, I mean, why don't we yeah. just it's not my money why don't we just buy 200 servers and at the wikimedia foundation is very much like okay
0: we have do we two really need running. Yeah, servers running <laughs> yeah
1: can we turn one off can we you know save electricity like what can we do and it's because of that fact that the foundation is very 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 accountable yeah. for every single amount of money that 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 we spend and people take it super seriously
0: yeah that's interesting. And what would you describe as the most fun part of your job day to day? The most fun part, yeah.
1: I think the part that I enjoyed the most is when we get to deploy a model that makes Wikipedia better. That's sort of like, that's the big, I mean, we work on things outside of Wikipedia that like the Wikimedia Foundation runs, like Wiki Commons, that kind of stuff. But obviously Wikipedia is a huge part of the stuff that we work on. And when you get to add a new feature to to Wikipedia, I mean that's just cool, right? Like that's just that's just a really really fun moment where yeah, and you can you see exchange. it immediately.
0: Yeah, you can see it's it. And
1: <laughs> it's just I mean, and it's a site that like I love, and you know everyone loves, and so to get to yeah. play like a small part of that is is amazing. I mean that's just that's just a really great experience, and and it's, it's fun to do there's obviously other fun parts of the job but i think that's the one where you can like load wikipedia and be like hey that's there now see i did that yeah
0: yeah interesting i'm interrupting this podcast to remind you to subscribe if you haven't and also nudge you to visit diversk.com to kickstart your technology career or get help navigating your existing tech career okay back to the discussion let's talk about some tools that you use currently now as a director Mm -hmm. first what are some tools that you use every day just to make your work better
1: i use a lot of alerts because as a director i have lots of staff under me or not lots of i have some staff under me and the important part about being an engineering leader a big part of it is like decision making right so Mm -hmm. i'm not I'm both like, you know, looking at the work that's done on my staff, but I also need to be able to make decisions with limited information. And so, should we use this Kubernetes based approach, or should we use this other based approach, or should we build our own? And no one on the team feels qualified to make the decision. That's now my decision, and I will make that one. And so, that means that the best way I can do that is not writing every line of code, which is a a habit that I've learned to not do anymore, but instead just be aware of what everyone is working on and like reading all the comments that they've made in the code, reading through the code, reading through any kind of changes, reading through discussions that happen in the ticketing system, just to make sure that I know what is happening, where when I need to make a decision, which is pretty common, I am in a position where I can make that decision. And so definitely like, you know, from the, it seems like a basic thing of having just a lot of, of notifications up of like how things work. But every single morning I get up and I spend an hour looking at what was done the day before to make sure that I'm in like a really, really, really good spot because, you know, I mean, I, I, I it sounds simple, but being able to make decisions is a skill that you get with experience and you get that experience by just being around the technical part. And I think that would be the thing for for new managers coming up. <laughs> I would say yeah. if you're going to be in you know machine learning specifically, like you have to stay pretty technical because yeah, you can't you can't sort of cede responsibility to other people for making decisions. you can delegate things definitely, but at the end of the day, like you will have to make decisions.
0: Yeah, and you need to understand it. what's really happening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you think, would you say the alerts and notifications sometimes are counterintuitive? Like, can, can they be <laughs> destructive sometimes?
1: I think a, a lot of it comes down to trying to figure out what sort of rabbit hole that I'm going to run down. Because we'll get notifications for stuff, and it's like, if this is true, Wikipedia is down but i suspect it's not true so i'm not going to go go take a look at it i think you know the the big proxy for me about whether where is something that i should spend my attention on is if people are talking about it so like if you have a work ticket that you have like twenty comments on, like you wake up in the morning and you have twenty comments on a work ticket. Like that is a ticket mm-hmm. that you should read and read every single line of code that's related to it. And even if you don't say anything, I don't need to. I don't need to say something in the ticket. I just, I just need to like make sure that I understand what is happening in that in that particular ticket. And then you know, like you can, I can go with that. Whatever I can, like have someone work on it. I can work on it. We can decide what to do. But it is important to not sort of see that responsibility of of how the system works and that individual decisions to, to someone else because at the end of the day I'm I'm the one who's making the decisions around it even if I'm not pushing the individual line of code which I wish I could but I tried that before and you burn out very quickly if you're
0: pretending you're the only developer. Yeah. Hmm, thank you for that very valuable information. Yeah so I wanted are there any other tools beyond the alerts and notifications? There definitely are that are as important
1: Yeah. I mean, I, so I am a huge VS code user. That's my, that's my go-to for, for identifying code on like a personal level, like, because I try to stay up with how, like how machine learning grows. And I do that through just like working on it on my own time. I use, I think it's called paper space. I used to, I used to have, if you could scroll the camera down, you'd see a very old computer right there. That's what I was working on doing, doing like sort of my own deep learning learning was sort Mm -hmm. of like training my own models and that kind of stuff. I've moved over to sort of hosted solutions for it, but I mean, I I use VS code. (laughs) I use Google calendars. If you really, you know, really care about my calendar app, but yeah, (laughs) I'll say that, you know, the, the thing, the thing that is important when you jump around to lots of different jobs is that you just understand the patterns of behavior that are common to all these different tools. So like my last job, when we started out, like we only used Vim. Like mm-hmm. that was just how you used everything. And that's okay, right? Like I, I'll, I'll code in Vim, I'll code in Emacs, I'll code in VS Code remotely, I'll code locally. Like I'll do whatever whatever I need to do, which means that I tend to not invest in like customizing anything in a super specific way. I tend to keep it like pretty pretty default, yeah. not because I'm lazy. Not because I'm lazy, as someone once said, but because the fact that I believe that, like, you know, if I go and take a next job, they're going to be like, "Okay, we only do anything in Vim again." I'm like, "Okay, cool. I could just take my company laptop, open it up, and now I'm in Vim, and then I can like, I'll just start working on yeah. stuff." I think that is really, really important, but it does mean that most of my stuff doesn't look as pretty because I don't <laughs> I haven't spent a lot of time customizing it to my to my unique purposes
0: yeah cool okay so there's something that just popped to my head now that's about learning because you definitely keep yourself up to date but how do you <laughs> go about this how do you go about like learning new things and making sure you know that you know you're still in the know
1: yep yeah. i have learned over time that i the machine learning as a field grows really really quickly like Every single year, it is a lot different than the year before. And every single five years, it feels like a totally new field. And so learning, like constantly getting better and learning the new thing and trying stuff out is incredibly important. And I've learned over time that the only way that I can actually learn something is by making something with it. And it doesn't need to be a big thing. So like I've written a book that was making a thing, right? The book had 300 tutorials in it. Each tutorial was like a thing that I made. I make these machine learning flashcards. Every single flashcard is me making something with it. I've done a podcast. Every single episode was me making something with it. I have a site with a lot of tutorials on it. Every single tutorial on the site was like me, like making a thing. Yeah. And that's the way that I learn. Like I take a book or, you know, a, a, a tutorial online or something like that. And I just open it up and I take that information and I process it through my brain and then i try to make like i try to explain mm. it to someone else or i try to yeah. do something and i try to like process it through my brain and like through doing that that's how i learn like i can't just read a book without
0: yeah you know it's without realistic. like trying it yeah yeah
1: and definitely like because my background isn't in math it's more in coding i tend to want to like run code for stuff right mm-hmm. so if you say hey we have this new you know system and just trust us it works or something like that like i need to like try to do it so like take a simple example like random forest like here's like random forest like when I first learned random forest the thing that made it stick in my head is like I made one and then I made one and you know made the tree smaller or made the tree bigger or changed the data set or tried a different technique or like whatever yeah but just like playing with it and actually using it myself that's the sort of like making something with it rather than just like opening the book on uh, the machine learning book on page one, reading to page 300 and saying that I know it because I will, I will never know. Like by the time (laughs) I get to 300, I will have forgotten page one. But if I go through slowly and make stuff with it, you know, tutorials, flashcards, whatever, that stuff will stick in my brain a lot more, a lot, a lot more
0: yeah thanks that was very helpful yeah this has been a very interesting conversation and (laughs) like we've been talking for about 25 minutes like it it was so I enjoyed every bit of it I would want us to like wrap this up with you know what is the final what is the one advice that you would give to someone who wants to get started in machine learning engineering today
1: yeah I would say well one piece of advice wow okay
0: (laughs) oh it can be multiple
1: (laughs) I mean, I I would say that one is, is there are so many learning resources out there for you. Like there's so many places that you can learn for some amount of money, for no money, just totally free. Like there's tons of options there for people to learn. And the interesting thing about machine learning is that because it's such a new field, that a lot of the requirements that you might have to be like a doctor or a lawyer where it's like you have to go to a certain school for a certain number of years and that kind of stuff that stuff doesn't exist
0: yeah for, there are no for barriers learning.
1: there's no barriers and like you, the 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 bar that you need to pass is the technical interview at the job right so you could apply anywhere and then they just give you a they give you a task that involves machine learning and like how well you do depends on whether or not they hire you and for that kind of stuff, you can you can realize that the difference between you being so bad that you aren't hired or good enough that you're just barely hired or really, really great that you're, you know, like the best candidate and everyone wants to hire you is just hours of your time that you spent working in machine, like working by yourself in machine learning, like writing notes to yourself, reading stuff, just being around things is Really useful. Like, it's just hours. It's just hours of time. Like, I have a bunch of books behind me, and like, I've spent a lot of time just sitting there, like, reading, taking notes on it, working on it. And that's what I do almost every single day, just to like keep going and you just get better every single time and you you push a little bit more. The second piece of advice I would say is social media and Twitter is actually like really useful in a weird way. Even if you don't like actually send any messages. Just seeing what people are talking about, just seeing, like, there'll be an article that sparks a really big discussion about ops or something like that, which is, like, how you manage lots of models. And just seeing that people are talking about the article, you sort of then go and read the article and, you know, like, learn, maybe learn something about where the discussion is. But I find it helps show you the landscape of what the field looks like where you can sort of see the differences between people who are more focused on research or people who are focused on like the industry and running things in production. You can see things around like what the latest advances are or techniques that people don't use anymore or other organizational things like how you structure a team and that kind of stuff. Social media, like even if you never post at all, even if you just exist, is actually really useful to just have it's like a, it's like a slow conference, right? It's like a slow machine learning conference Mm. over time. And then you can just pop in and sort of see what the conversations are about and say, okay, cool. You know, like I got some stuff from that. That's great. And then you can move on with your, with your life, but it continues to add value where I used to have a really big RSS reader with like 200 blogs on it, all like machine learning blogs. And now I just let social media sort of do the filtering for me. and. Interesting stuff will just be the things that people end up talking yeah. about, and so like that stuff just floats to the surface, and then it appears in my feed, and then I read it. And like, I think it's a good way to <laughs> to do it rather than reading every single Reddit post or something like yeah. that. Yeah.
0: Thanks, Chris. This was a very, very interesting conversation. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Diverse K Podcast. If you found it helpful. Please share it with your friends and colleagues that would also find it helpful. Do have a wonderful morning, afternoon or night. Until next week, bye!